Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, do please be seated. And uh, we're going to be looking at a parable from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18, which you can find on page 1052 in the Church Bibles. And uh, let me pray as we turn that up. Faith in the only sacrifice that can for sin atone, to found our hopes, to fix our eyes on Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, Father, for your astonishing mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray now, by the help of your Spirit, you would help us to fix our hopes and our eyes on him. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, over these uh, three Sundays, we're looking at some of Jesus' parables together. Uh, Fascinating. And uh, I hope that uh, this evening will be interesting for you as you see the way in which Jesus uses parables to provoke his listeners. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I always think that English summers play with the British like a cat plays with a mouse. Yeah, one minute, last Sunday, the sun's out, you're talking to your neighbour, all is well with the world. And the next minute, the claws of a windswept autumn have reasserted their grip and you are preparing yourself for the gleeful pronouncement of statisticians that is probably going to be the wettest summer for 50 years or something like that. Now, clearly, even for the English, there are things that are more difficult than the weather, sometimes much more difficult. So difficult that actually life can feel difficult to the point where you feel weary and discouraged. Cynical, maybe. We face all sorts of questions about life and truth and God. Questions that can leave us disheartened, if not despairing, wondering where God is in everything. 
facing the danger, if not the reality of despair. I think for all of us at some point in life, we will face suffering from loss. Loss of health or loss of relationships, loss of employment. Illness, bereavement, unemployment can leave us feeling like the psalmist. That all God's ways and breakers have swept over us. And yet if we're Christians, then sometimes the suffering we face is not just the suffering of loss, but the suffering of opposition. For making a stand for Jesus in a world that is hostile to the gospel is not easy. Never surprises me how difficult it is to be known as a Christian at school. It's incredibly difficult in a school culture which values conforming so highly. It's striking how difficult it is to stand up for Christ in the workplace. I know people here who have worked in education, worked in the health service, for whom standing for Christ has cost them promotion, opposition from parents, opposition from colleagues. Perhaps it's opposition from family. I can think of one young woman who was part of this congregation a number of years ago whose parents and brother thought she was out of her mind for following Christ. I remember praying with her in the vestry one night before an evening service for her parents were threatening to come to the service and to physically take her away. Or what about the opposition you receive even within the wider church? For holding orthodox Christian positions and being accused of being a heretic? I'm always struck by Paul's experience in the New Testament, this this mighty man of God who can nevertheless speak about feeling hard-pressed and perplexed and, and persecuted and struck down, so much so that on one occasion he can write about feeling so much under pressure that it is beyond his ability to endure. Such pressure that the Apostle Paul can even say that he despaired of life itself. See, as ever, the Bible's realism is a far greater encouragement than our misguided and dishonest triumphalism. Of course, Paul's experience will have deep resonance with many of God's people throughout the world even today. One reliable commentator estimates that around the world today, an average of 159,000 Christians are losing their lives because they believe in Jesus. Between 200 and 250 million believers suffering physical and political persecution. And an additional 400 million who are not able to practice their faith freely. So even this past week, Maryam Ibrahim, a 27-year-old Sudanese doctor who is due to have her second baby next month, has been condemned to death by hanging. Why? Because she has married a Christian and is regarded as an adulteress. And she has refused to renounce her Christian faith. Now, such terrible persecution is depressingly common in certain parts of the world, even if it is a rarity in the UK. 
But if the Christian West or so-called Christian West is exempt from persecution, there is growing evidence, I think, of discrimination against Christians. It regularly pops up in the media. Whether it's the staff from Gloucester Council who back in 2012 stopped Christians from distributing Christian literature claiming that the activity was in breach of a local bylaw. Or a world that I'm much more familiar with, university student unions like Exeter banning Christian union groups from being members of the guild and restricting or removing their right to use university rooms to meet. Or maybe something just as trivial as the news this week about London's Royal Parks banning the Bible Society from running a children's fun day in any of their parks. The application was to help children to engage with the Bible, to engage with the story of Jonah. Uh, The day came complete with giant inflatable whale and it was banned because it was considered to be an act of religious observance. Given that the royal parks are technically owned by the Queen, who is the supreme governor of the Church of England, there was a certain irony in the decision that seemed to have bypassed the bureaucrats who imposed it. Now, none of that is even close to persecution, but there is, I think, a growing discrimination against Christians in this country, and it's likely to increase. At a personal level, I'm not sure I've even experienced discrimination, but I have faced personal opposition from family, from friends for being a Christian, and some will face much worse than me here. I had a difficult conversation with a good friend recently, Uh, We talked, as we often do, about a variety of different things, issues from gender to end-of-life questions, Uh, explaining the convictions that I hold and that I share with millions of Christians down through history, I was met with his bewildered incredulity. And at the end of the conversation, at the end of a difficult conversation, as I was getting out of his car, he said to me, quote, I am really surprised that you think that. I always thought you were a reasonable sort of Christian. See, part of the problem is that there is no such thing as a neutral state. Uh, James Davison Hunter put it like this, law infers a moral judgment. Policy implies a world view. And where there's disagreement, as there is about basic questions of life, sometimes the state becomes an unacknowledged patron of ideology. So-called appeals for tolerance really are little more than an imposition of the secular worldview of the state. Or as the barrister David McElroy puts it, totalitolerance. See, when the prevailing culture seems increasingly opposed to the gospel, persecution in the wider world, discrimination within our own society, or just opposition from family and friends, and sadly even the church, when the prevailing culture seems increasingly opposed to the gospel, it can leave people weary and discouraged and in danger of spiritual drift. See, if God rules in heaven, then why not on earth? Where is the justice for God's people? Why does does God allow opposition such a stronghold within our culture? Why does the Lord permit so much rejection of the gospel of Jesus within the church? And given that things seem to be getting worse rather than better, you can sometimes think whether there is any point in praying. 
For it feels, doesn't it, as if the world carries on regardless, that people are eating and drinking and buying and selling and building and marrying. Exactly what Jesus is talking about in, John, in Luke 17, just before where we picked up. The world carries on, eating, drinking, buying, selling, building, marrying. And to his disciples who were and are in danger of discouragement and drifts, chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable to show them, to show us that we should always pray and not give up. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus tells you what the point of his sermon is before he actually delivers it. He tells you what it's all about. Why does he do that? Because understanding the truth is more than simply stating abstract principles. Even if it's never less than that. You see, invariably, our problem is not that we don't know the right answers. Sometimes we don't. But invariably, our problem is not that we don't know the right answers. Our problem is often that we know the right answers, but we don't feel their truthfulness. You see, head and heart need to know the truth if we are to trust the truth. And and so Jesus, like most of the Bible, tells a story so that we inhabit the truth. We dwell in it, if you like. We, We feel its persuasive power. And so then, we are enabled to trust Christ when the going gets tough. And yet, Jesus' parables are much more than mere illustrations. Still less, as some people seem to think, they are simple stories for simple people. You see, there's something very interesting about Jesus' stories because as we sift his parables, we find somewhat unnervingly that his parables are beginning to sift us. So, Jesus tells a story with two characters, a powerful judge and a powerless widow. It's a sketch. It's a pen portrait. Two individuals whose lives and circumstances will reshape distorted views of God and encourage God's people who are weary in opposition to pray and not give up. Verse 2. In a certain town, there was a judge. A judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. Now, for a believing Jew, the picture that Jesus sketches is a picture of of godless corruption about as bad as you could imagine. You remember elsewhere in the Gospels, somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is to love your neighbour as yourself. So here is a man who does neither. He neither fears God nor loves his neighbour. He's not bothered about God's verdict on his life and he doesn't care less about other people's opinion. And alongside this godless, arrogant and powerful member of the judiciary, there is, verse 3, a widow. See, if the judge is a picture of power, the widow is a picture of weakness, not because of her gender, but because of her circumstance. See, a widow in the first century often faced personal and financial difficulties, the like of which I suspect few of us can actually imagine. And in all likelihood, it was some sort of financial injustice that led her to petition this corrupt judge with her desperate plea, verse 3. 
And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. See, she's like some sort of first century Erin Brockovich, this single woman petitioning a corrupt male judiciary, and she won't take no for an answer. And yet, verse 4, for some time, he refused. Now, it's interesting because Jesus actually doesn't tell us how long he refused. See, difficulty is always easier to bear when you know there's actually an end in sight. Ask anyone who's out of work and looking for a job. It's not just the difficulty of the present, it's the uncertainty about the future. See, tell me that I'll have a job by the end of the summer and I can cope. Tell me I just don't know how long it's going to take and I can feel my spirit crushed with the uncertainty. But the reality is that for all of us, there is no pre-released schedule of life's joys and sorrows. And that always makes it harder to trust. Always. So the widow kept petitioning and the judge kept refusing. But verse 4, finally, finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God, or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with this coming. It's the most extraordinary of insights into the mind of this corrupt judge. This man who has neither a stable foundation to underpin his belief in justice, he has no transcendent value, he doesn't think there are absolutes, He thinks that laws are made, not found. This man who has neither a stable foundation to underpin his belief in justice, nor anything but entirely selfish motivation for delivering justice, for his guiding principle is anything for an easy life. This corrupt, arrogant and selfish man actually in the end delivers this vulnerable widow the precious justice she deserves. And Jesus says, verse 6, you need to listen to what the unjust judge says. Whoa, who'd have thought of that? Lessons in justice, life and faith from the lips of a corrupt and contemptible lawyer. Listen, listen to what the unjust judge says. You see, Jesus is saying, if a compromised, arrogant and self-centred judge can deliver justice... How much more, verse 7, will God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him night and day? So much Christian encouragement to to pray more, to pray persistently. It it always feels to me often that that kind of insipid, guilt-inducing, pious exhortation. And you look at Jesus and you think, whoa, this is much more robust. For what Jesus does in the parable is he makes explicit in his story what is often implicit in our hearts. 
He makes explicit in his story all the questions and doubts that we have and dare not speak. And he puts them in the form of a story so we see them. You see, discouraged by opposition to the gospel, we often begin to doubt the truth of the gospel. Think of John the Baptist in prison. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect another? Or the cries of the persecuted church down through history. How long, O Lord? How long? Or the bewilderment of those who have come to trust Jesus, whose non-Christian spouse or non-Christian parents or, or family, they are at best incredulous and at worst they are derisive and mocking and hostile and sometimes even worse. I can think of a student who was converted in Bath a number of years ago from a Muslim background. She feared for her life. Her brother and father promised to come and kill her. If God rules in heaven, then why not on earth? Where is the justice for God's persecuted people? Why why does God allow such opposition to the gospel, such a strong stronghold within our culture? Why does the Lord permit so much rejection of the truth, even within the church? And given that things seem to be getting worse, not better, is there any point in praying? So Jesus takes, if you like, the worst case scenario. A corrupt and powerful judge and a vulnerable and powerless widow. And we see that against all the odds, contrary to all that you would expect from your limited view of the situation, facing a situation that seems all but impossible, an unjust judge delivers precious justice to a powerless but persistent widow. So, verse 7. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. See, whatever the difficulties you may be experiencing, perhaps persecution, although unlikely, discrimination, well, increasingly, opposition, oh, inevitable. If you have nailed your colours to the mast and you are taking Jesus and his words seriously, you will face opposition. You will face opposition at school. You will face opposition in the workplace. You will face opposition from your family and you will even face opposition in the church. Of course it was ever ever thus i was just reading this afternoon about william tyndale who translated the bible into english astonishing translated the bible into english the church was opposing him and there were thousands of copies of the bible spreading throughout europe and do you know what the archbishop of canterbury did he hatched a plan to buy them in order that he could burn them such is the opposition that comes even from within the church to the truth of the gospel But whatever the difficulties you or I may experience, the problem is not with God. The problem is not in his, neither in his ability to deliver justice, nor in his willingness to do so. 
His, his timescale may not be yours or mine, but when justice comes, it will come quickly. And yet, and yet you, you read that and you think, how, how is this anything more than just kind of mere assertion and wishful thinking? You know, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes life is tough. Being a follower of Jesus and the world will oppose you and even hate you. But cheer up and here's a nice story to make you feel better. Is that what Jesus is doing? Well, that's where there's a really interesting twist in this tale that Jesus tells. That's when the parable starts to work on us, even when we think we are working on it. For do you see that Jesus ends this short parable with a question, verse 8? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, if you've got the church Bible, the the NIV translators are trying to be helpful here, and so they have translated the phrase Son of Man with capitals. We love capitals. The problem is it sort of misses the point of the parable because the parable is supposed to make you think, not to tell you what to think. It's supposed to make you think more about who exactly Jesus is. Now, Son of Man is Jesus' favourite way of referring to himself. Even in Luke's Gospel, Jesus uses it 25 times. And yet the phrase is actually more enigmatic than the NIV suggests. Son of Man can either mean a man in general, or it can mean this man in particular. So at one level, Jesus is either making some sort of vague point about holding out for justice because justice matters for all people everywhere. Or Jesus is saying something far more provocative. Something completely extraordinary. Something so outrageous that it should stop you dead in your tracks. And that is the claim that he will, in the end, be the one who delivers universal justice. And whether we trust him will determine our eternity. See, how can you face persecution? How can you face discrimination? How can you face opposition for the gospel? What is going to encourage you to keep praying for justice, even when you are weary and discouraged and down? It is not dwelling on the why of the injustices. It is focusing on the who that will, in the end, deliver justice. It is increasingly clear as you read through Luke's account that Jesus really does intend to make some weighty and extraordinary claim in referring to himself as the Son of Man. All he is saying and doing is pushing people to rethink who he is. So just in chapter 17, the coming of the Son of Man is is reference to the coming judgment of God. And you read on towards the end of the gospel and come to chapter 21. And this Son of Man will not just be any Son of Man, but the Son of Man that the prophet Daniel saw hundreds of years earlier. The one who approaches the throne of God and receives universal authority, and receives international worship, and rules over an everlasting kingdom. So, when Jesus says that if an unjust judge delivers precious justice to a powerless but persistent widow, how much more will God bring justice to his chosen ones? It is not wishful thinking, it is a divine promise. Verse 8. 
You see, the truth or otherwise of the Christian message stands or falls on the identity of Jesus. He is either a man like any other or the man like no other. And if he is the man like no other man, if he is the son of man, the one who has universal authority, that all nations and all people will one day worship, who will rule over an everlasting kingdom, then you need to be ready for when that day comes. You thought it was just a nice, easy story. And Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? For when he comes, he will bring justice. A truth that brings the most sobering of challenges and the most wonderful of comforts. Challenge because if we do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and we do not love our neighbour as ourselves, then what we will get, what will I get is, is justice and yet what I need is forgiveness. And as you read on in Luke, you discover that it is only because judgment is borne at the cross by Jesus that forgiveness is offered at the cross for you. And yet, you know, there is not just challenge here, but wonderful comfort and encouragement. Because whatever opposition you face in standing with and standing for Jesus, maybe it's opposition within the wider culture, but I suspect it's close to home for many of us. Opposition at school, or in the workplace, or from your family, or even from the wider church. Jesus promises that you will get justice and you will get it quickly. So, he says, continue to pray and do not give up. If a corrupt and powerful judge can deliver justice to a vulnerable and powerless widow, how much more? How much more will the Son of Man bring justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day? And night. Well, shall we pray? Lord, you are our refuge and strength, an ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Father, we pray for justice for those persecuted throughout the world for owning the name of Christ. For Miriam, this young woman in Sudan. And countless, countless thousands. For those of us who face opposition in school, in the workplace, from, from families, thank you, thank you, Lord, that you are compassionate and gracious, that you are slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. 
Thank you that you maintain love to thousands, that you forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet you do not leave the guilty unpunished. May your justice lead us to repentance. May your justice encourage us always to pray and not to give up so that your kingdom will come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.